Welcome to the Humanity Matters Podcast, where we discuss and reflect on faith and philosophy, nonprofit leadership, and social issues. We want to engage ideas on what it means to be a free human being in the pursuit of human flourishing. For more information, visit our website, philipfletcher.org. And now, the Humanity Matters Podcast. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Humanity Matters uh, show. And we are having our special Humanity Matters one-on-one. Today, we have Dr. Peg Falls Corbett with us. And as always, if you are interested in learning more, please find my website, philipfletcher.org. That is philipfletcher.org. Also, we are broadcasting live on YouTube. And so if you just go into the search bar over at youtube.com, put in Humanity Matters, you'll see my handsome face and you can subscribe and see a lot of great content, uh, lectures and talks and educational material. If you are a podcaster and love to listen to podcasts as you are walking, you know, spring is hit, people are going to be taking walks or maybe you like to exercise to it or just have something going in the background when you're at home, please jump over to anchor.fm where you can find the Humanity Matters podcast and we get podcasts releasing uh, at least once per week and go over there, subscribe, give a review. Got a lot of great interviews and talks going on there as well. So if you miss anything that happens here on Sundays, you can catch that as well on uh, the Humanity Matters podcast. Hey, sponsorships help. If you want to sponsor this show, please visit PayPal, pfletcher73 at gmail.com, pfletcher73 at gmail.com, and the mailbag. If you want to participate in the mailbag and get something cool, I'll choose your question. Send me an email at humanitymatterspodcast at gmail.com. That is humanitymatterspodcast at gmail.com. And so uh, today, we're going to be talking about criminal justice death penalty, punishment, justice uh, in relationship to human flourishing. The United States incarcerates a whole lot of people, all right, a whole lot of people. A study came out uh, from Pew Research was September 2020, U.S. Department of Justice stated at the end of 2018, a total of 30 states and a federal bureau of prisons held 2,628 persons under the sentence of death. The states of California, Florida, Texas held about half of those persons. Here in the state of Arkansas, where we are broadcasting from, where I live and where Dr. Corbett teaches at Hendricks College, the state of Arkansas, uh, as of December 31st, 2018, according to the uh, Bureau of Statistics, Uh, The state of Arkansas has 31 persons under the penalty of death. The means of execution um, that can be used here in the state of Arkansas include lethal injection and electrocution. What does it mean for a society which practices the death penalty? What impact does this have on individuals? And more specifically, what about the family members of victims? And what about the family members of those persons who 
um, are under the sentence of death and, you know, in the case of Arkansas, have received lethal injection or execution? What is the impact on them as well? How can we understand justice and human flourishing in a world that may one day end this practice? You know, we all hope for a, a better world. And so for your consideration, uh, I want to share with you a quote by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. If only there were evil people somewhere <clears throat> insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the dividing the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? And that's from Alexander Solzhenitsyn uh, from his book, The Gulag Archipelago. And so today we have with us Peg Falls Corbett. Hello, Dr. Peg. Hey, Phil. Hey, Dr. Fletcher. <laughs> How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good. Doing good. So Dr. Corbett is the Virginia A. McCormick Pittman Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at Hendricks College here in good old Conway, Arkansas, where she has taught since 1987. Dr. Corbett graduated Phi Beta Kappa from the Rose College and holds her MA and PhD in philosophy from Vanderbilt University. Her articles on the ethics of punishment include Against the Death Penalty, A Christian Stance, in a secular world, in the Christian century. Another one, retribution, reciprocity, and respect for persons in law and philosophy, and prisons and privacy, a moral evaluation in the journal Freedom, Equality, and Social Change. In April 2017, as Arkansas was preparing to execute eight people within 11 days, Paul Corbett's letter entitled, and I quote, Not Justice, appeared in the Arkansas Times. Charles Corbett is an ordained elder in the Presbyterian Church USA, and she and her husband, Doug Corbett, also a philosopher, have two adult daughters. Dr. Corbett, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Phil. Hey, so tell us a little bit about, I know I just read through your bio and all that, um, but what's not covered in the bio? Just tell us about yourself, hobbies, things you like to do. Um, tell us about your family, something unique about them. Well, I guess one thing that's not in the bio is that I grew up in Arkansas. Um, okay. I grew up in Wynn, Arkansas, in, in the Delta, and I'm very appreciative of the family, extended family and friends and church family that raised me there, and that I taught in Iowa and Indiana before coming back to Hendricks. And I met my husband in, in uh, Indiana. We were teaching at St. Mary's College there, and the position at Hendricks came open. It was a chance to return home and teach at a place that I had admired. Uh, my, my husband, Doug, was willing to come and we, we came. And uh, in Conway, I think our activities has been, have been um, trying to be good members and, and good teachers at each of our institutions. He's at UCA at the Honors College and I'm here uh, working through our church, First Presbyterian, uh, and uh, various activities and, um, that we try to do good in, in, in uh, Conway. Uh, through some nonprofits and so on. So that's our great. hobbies are uh, hiking national parks. That's our main. Okay. Good deal. Yeah, some good hiking. I'm sure it's about to happen. We've got some yep. uh, beautiful weather here in Arkansas. So right. it'd be great to hit those trails. So can you offer us a, a, a working definition 
of punishment as it relates uh, to our legal system and just how this developed uh, over the centuries? Sure. So I think the most general um, definition of punishment, it would be that it's what we do to wrongdoers, to hold them accountable for the wrong they do. And in the case of the legal system, of course, the we there is uh, is the state. Uh, mm-hmm. It is not, not meaning Arkansas versus Alabama, uh, but the legal institutions that um, that reinforce our laws. And the wrongdoers are those folks who break break the laws. And I'm mostly focused on people who break what I consider the laws at the core of our of the moral aspect of our our system. Uh, so rape, um, assault, murder burglary and those kinds of things. And uh, punishment, the other thing I would add about punishment is that it's always, it's always coercive and it always involves the infliction of some kind of, of suffering uh, that we, circumstances that we think will, people will take um, unwanted, that they don't want, right? So somebody might want <laughs> to end up in jail, uh, but we don't punish them because they want to. We punish them uh-huh. because they want as far as the historical, I don't think the definition of punishment is what has changed all that much. I think that our understanding of what means we can use to punish justly uh, have, have changed and uh, possibly our deepening understanding of what questions we need to ask when we ask about the ethics of punishment. And the ethics of punishment for me are the two questions, uh, what justifies punishment at all, especially since it is a coercive infliction of suffering of some kind, and you can't just go around doing that. So you've got to have a just cause. And yeah. uh, and given that justification, what kinds or degrees of punishment are justified? So. Okay. So what, what ideas have contributed to uh, an ethics of punishment? Um, you know, religiously, politically, uh, what ideas have contributed to our understanding of, like you said, the means in which we uh, distribute punishment? Yeah. So uh, I think that in ethics, we think of sort of two broad groups, the consequentialist, the folks who are thinking that what justifies an act is the consequences and the non-consequentialist folks that look at that there's something other about the very nature of our actions uh, that justifies something. And so on the first camp, the consequentialist group, the punishment is generally justified. Uh, well, one is through it, that it deters, that what justifies punishment is uh, that it has a deterrence effect. And um, in, in that deterrence effect, you can affect, you can concentrate on two kinds of deterrence we think it has. And one, if we uh, keep that person from, uh, from committing further crimes, then we've deterred that person as far as their future behavior goes. Obviously, we failed to deter them if they did a wrong. Uh, but we hope that when we punish one group, it deters another group from having any incentive to, to act. So deterrence is a major theory for justifying punishment. Some people want to look at rehabilitation, uh, that what justifies punishment is that people have done a wrong and and they clearly have identified themselves as folks who need to be rehabilitated, and we do that. Uh, In the non-consequentialist camp, most of uh, the the main one there is retribution and the idea of something about a person doing a wrong justifies or causing undue, what we call undue suffering, justifies our inflicting some kind of suffering upon them. And then I think today we would add restorative justice, which I, um, I'm not sure that it, that that theory is as much something that justifies punishment. This tells us what we 
what would it be best for us to do once punishment is justified? Although I know restorative justice people don't like the word punishment. So okay. you can talk about that if you want. But yeah. uh, my, my work has been on taking the theory of retributive justice, which many people call eye for eye, tooth for tooth, okay. for, and, and, I, and standing there, but being against the death penalty. Yes, and we are going to get there. So uh, offer us an evaluation um, of the death penalty and how it's been used in the United States. Um, just from your standpoint as a, as a moral philosopher, um, offer us your evaluation of that, of how it's been implemented, its impact. Uh, just share with us that. Yeah, so, so my, my approach uh, as, as an ethicist is to think about the death penalty as a kind of punishment. Um, obviously, a punishment ends, ends in death. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and to ask what could justify it and what justifies it has to be uh, some theory that justifies punishment in the first place. So what, what justifies punishment and then looking to see whether the death penalty can be uh, justified as achieving the aims that justify punishment in the first place. So okay. let me first use sort of two, the two that I don't use, but but they give a, an easier illustration. Let's say that we said that uh, the purpose of punishment that justifies this coercion in another person's life is deterrence. And then it would really matter. I mean, if that's what justifies punishment, then it's on us to prove that the death penalty deters. Okay. And, uh, and, it, and the evidence is that the death penalty does not deter murder any better than life, uh, say life imprisonment or less severe uh, punishments. And so if one is a strong deterrence and you think that's it, that's what we're doing when we punish, um, then the death penalty isn't justified. If you think uh, rehabilitation is the, the purpose of punishment, then it's pretty clear, I think, that the death penalty is not justified because it doesn't rehabilitate but end the person's life. And so the hard one is, is really, well, what about retributive justice? Uh, what, a, what about this notion of uh, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life? And when I look at that, uh, well, first, just to note a couple of things, even though we're willing to do life for life, we have to acknowledge that there are limits to what we're willing to do, even if we're retributivist. I mean, I just don't know a contemporary retributist who thinks that we should torture torturers or rape mm -hmm. rape. And okay. so that's so that, that simple in-kind thing we pull back from. And the question is, why do we pull back from it? And to answer that question, I also want to, to point out that we have to, if we're going to be retributivist, uh, we, we, just, we have to do more than just utter a sentence, well, surely it's eye for eye, life for life. And uh -huh. we have to explain why. Um, the philosopher H.L.A. Hart has said, what, by what strange moral alchemy does suffering um, respond to suffering, suffering. Yeah. make good, right? And so when I look at that question, I appeal to the fundamental moral principle that's most important to me as an ethicist altogether. And, uh, and that is, I'm stealing from a philosopher named Immanuel Kant, but mm -hmm. you have to respect persons as ends in themselves. You have to respect persons as inherently worthy being, as a particular kind of special being capable of choosing and and evaluating their acts in accordance with right or wrong, even when we do that badly. And uh, that is actually why I prefer the, the retributivist theory. I think it's the mm -hmm. one uh, ethical explanation that says desert matters. Retributive says you can't punish unless they've done it. That somewhere people have to deserve that punishment. 
Why do people deserve punishment yeah. at all? Before we even get to the death penalty, why do people deserve punishment at all? And uh, and that the answer in that for me is that persons, you and I and all human beings for me, are exactly the kind of being, being who can be a moral agent, right? Mm-hmm. Make decisions and claim they're good or bad, uh, even when we get our, judge, our judgment wrong. And when you're dealing with that kind of being, you're dealing with a per, the very kind of being that can be held morally accountable. So for me to respect you, for example, Phil, is right. that you're the kind of person that is accountable for his actions. Right. And you do that in a lot of ways, but when it comes to wrongdoing, I'm respecting you as a person. Let's say you did do something bad to me, right? And if I just didn't do anything about it, in a way, I've treated you like the squirrel in my yard that I don't know how to correct. No, yeah. person. And so when I say, no, you ought not to do this. This cannot be done. I will not tolerate it. That is a way of respecting you as a person. So yeah. my view, justified punishment in a, in a state is, try, is our mechanism for telling folks, no, this cannot be done. And that we need a way to, um, to communicate how bad it is that they do yeah. that. And so that's where the severity and the proportionality principle comes in, is that if we just treated all wrongdoings alike, punish them exactly the same, we wouldn't be communicating as a society that there is a difference between murder, uh, even murder and rape and assault and burglary and driving on the wrong side of the car, <laughs> right? If, if, just- if, I can, if I can ask, um, we, you're speaking about, <clears throat> because we arrive at this point because one individual has um, has done something uh, allegedly to another individual. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, the judicial process occurs and then uh, that individual is found uh, to be guilty. Um, obviously, that person has the, the right to appeal, uh, so on and so forth. But uh, one thing that's always interested me is that since it's an action of one person against another person, um, why why do we hear it's the state versus Philip Fletcher instead of, you know, said you know, victim, okay. you know, that victim's name versus this person? Great question. First, I want to take one other step in what I was saying about punishment is holding people accountable, because to me, it means that therefore in punishing people, we must ask for a response from them as a moral agent. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've got to treat them as one who can respond and we must use punishments that they can respond to. Yeah. And and, and then we can go, I'm going to go back to your other question first, but Uh I think, Raping rapists, torturing tortures, and killing killers are punishments that that are designed for the person not to be able to respond as a yeah. moral agent, and that that's what makes them wrong. Now, if you to go, and we can come back to that if you want, but to go to your question is that really punishment historically, ethically, and I want to say correctly, is not seen as uh, something one person against another. That is. The uh, the state's system of punishment does not exist to carry out my will for the person who harms me. Uh, let's imagine that I'm really sick of somebody driving up into my yard uh, mm-hmm. at, at night and leaving tracks. And I'm so angry at them that yeah. what I want, 
I mean, I'm, I'm using a, a ridiculous case to just show that, that it's not carrying out my will, right? Uh, there's the, the government, the, the state, we've, we've we, the state on our behalf, uh, we have laws for how much a person can be penalized, charged, or whatever for, for driving into my yard. Yeah. It doesn't matter how much anger I have at that person. The, the, we cannot turn the state into an arm of an individual's degree of vengeance. And so what the state does, what, what we see ethically is that the purpose of punishment is to protect the, the whole. That punishment is a way that we all, all of us as citizens, carry a kind of burden and benefit of law. Uh, the, there might be to some a burden uh, of, of obeying, and the benefit is that we can expect people to obey insofar yeah. as the state acts on our behalf. So, so that's actually a very important part of the nature of punishment is that it's not that we can just charge the state to do to a wrongdoer what the individual wronged wants the state to do. It is done on all our behalf. And the problem with death penalty is that people are killed on my behalf and on your behalf and on everybody's behalf. That is, we have all decided in Arkansas uh, through a representative government yeah. that the death penalty is an acceptable way to uh, to punish people generally, no matter what we feel about it. I can talk more about how I care about the victims and what I think they're going through relative to my being opposed to death penalty. If you want to, or we can go. Oh back yeah, to- yeah, we're gonna we're we're gonna get there. We are because I think uh, um, you know just in my readings, um, you know that's that's brought up is is what about the victims' families? Um, but then also I think about as well. What about um, the person who's put to death in their families as well? There, there's multiple parties that are involved in this. And I think um, one of the things that we can forget is um, even the person that's on death row and is put to death, he or she has someone you know, that loves them uh, as well, uh, even have to still reconcile um, the act that they committed, um, but they still have to deal with loss as well. Um, and, and the suffering that's going, going all the way around. Uh, no one is, is obviously uh, exempt of that. So in your, your 2017 article that you published mm-hmm. uh, about not justice, Ken, what motivated you uh, to not just, you know, write that, you know, you could have just written that for academic reason, but you chose to, have that published in the Arkansas Times. Can you talk to us about that and um, what you wanted that to accomplish? Well, I think the the uh, the, the rapidness with which Arkansas was prepared to carry out uh, the death sentence pointed to many many problems with the death penalty, and uh, and one is just mm-hmm. very the the importance of uh, of of appeals to make sure that we are in fact killing people that even by our own laws, though I disagree with them, deserve, uh, deserve death. And what I, but I, what I saw in the conversation was that, um, that most people were using retributivism, right? This notion that, that murderers deserve death in order to defend the death penalty and wrapping into that some claim about justice for the victim. Uh-huh. And my position, of course, is that while retributivism is the right that is the right way to justify punishment, 
that there is a limit to the kind of proportionality or how you can express the proportionality of suffering that we return. And that's limited mm. by the fact that we cannot uh, turn people into things rather than having a punishment system that asks them to respond to punishment as a, as a rational agent. Yeah, can I say something to that quickly? So in, uh, one other, can I say one other thing first? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The other thing is, um, and, and those people who were saying life for life, life for life may just not identify with this form of retributivism, but the retributivism really is a theory of punishment that cares about proportional punishment. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, uh, and we know that, that there are people who have uh, been, who have received the death penalty, had it carried out. And we later find out that they didn't do it. We know that we are exonerating people on death row and discovering. So we know they're innocent people on death row. And the problem with death is, one of the problems with death is you cannot, you can't compensate once you've right. taken a problem. And so uh, to me, a just theory of punishment never, uh, especially one that cares about proportionality, never allows a kind of punishment for which there is no compensation when you get it wrong. When you accuse the wrong person and death is uniquely that punishment that we, for which right. there can be no compensation. And so, so it's unjust on, on that basis as well. And then there are of course other things about the way in which we carry it out in our own system where uh, those people, uh, people of color and poor uh, don't get uh, similar treatment in our, in our court system. And, uh, and that I think so also makes the death penalty questionable because we're handing out something that's, uh, I mean, even if all the kinds of different punishments, there's, they're different races, let's say racism or poverty affects a judgment upon that person. Mm -hmm. uh, the death penalty, again, is a unique way in which there can be no making up. Right. Uh, discrimination and that bad judgment. That's true. Yeah. You, you had mentioned um, really a depersonalization. You mentioned things and, uh, in the the paper that you wrote on uh, retribution, reciprocity, and and respect, and how um, in there you had uh, referenced, um, I believe it was an officer within the prison system who said even just incarceration itself, it it I'm making up a word here, it thingifies uh, the incarcerated because. Um, somebody's always in their life and it's, and they're always subject to uh, the whims decisions of somebody else. And I thought that was a powerful uh, reference. And then on the other side, in looking at the death penalty, how um, I think, for, I think for some, you know, to uh, support of the death penalty is because, you've moved from seeing that individual as a person uh, to just someone who, you know, you strap them up and, and electrocute them or uh, give them a lethal injection. And it's easier to, to, to deal with that if you don't look at that individual, that human being, that as, as I hold to, that person made in the image and likeness of God uh, as a human being. And it, it makes it easier for us to swallow uh, what what happens to that individual. Um, I think yeah. that's ex exactly right. And uh, mm -hmm. 
and probably behind a lot of what I see is what's 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 bad, not good, what's terrible, what what's unjust in our incarceration system ties to how quickly we move from this person did a wrong to this person is then only that wrongful act or uh, it turned them, we put them in a box where they become just a thing, maybe a monster even, right? Uh, yeah. And we stop treating them as a person. We don't see their sacred worth. So this notion that I have and that I'm using from Khan about respect for persons as persons, I mean, as a Christian, what I love about it is that it does express that notion of each individual having sacred worth and our obligation to, to always respond to them in a way that acknowledges that, that worth. That's right. That's what I want in our system, and that's why I'm against the death penalty. I hear you. Hey, this is Dr. Philip Fletcher with Dr. Peg Falls Corbett, and we are talking about uh, the death penalty and retributive justice, and we're going to talk more about that, and we will be back after this commercial break. Stay tuned.
All righty. Hey, welcome back to the Humanity Matters show. We've got Humanity Matters one-on-one with Dr. Peg Falls uh, Corbett, and we are talking about the death penalty and retributive uh, justice. If you have a question or a comment, hey, uh, put it up. We would love to take that in our uh, upcoming minutes. So, uh, Dr. Corbett, let's talk about the family. Um, speak to that in your understanding of... The families, yes, ma'am. Okay. In regard to retributive justice. Yeah. Yeah. So first, I just want—I I think that we should. Uh, it's incumbent upon us, right, as caring people, um, to think about what a victim of horrible wrongdoing is is suffering, and and to appreciate the emotions that that they have, and um, and to know just how how much they, they, they don't want this to ever have happened to them, how much anger they're going to have at the person who has done this, who's taken their loved one's life, um, you know, resentment, desire to see that person suffer, that comes out of a pain that they have. And we do need to find ways to, to acknowledge that, that pain and to care for them but as I said earlier, what we can't do, I think, is mm-hmm. do something for that pain that is, in fact, a morally wrong thing for us to do as a people and as a, as a state. And as I said, I think the death penalty is morally wrong. And so that's just not something we can give, give the victim. It's, mm-hmm. not, you know, it's, not ju- it's not justice for them because it's not a just act. Um, and I was just going to add something, uh, something about that in a second. Uh, but what we, and in fact, I think that when, when we study things, uh, and I can't point, I'm not going to give you the reference for it, but, but my, often families think that what they need to heal uh-huh. is that the person die, the person who stole their loved one's life to die. But what yeah. we find is it, it's not healing. Yeah, it doesn't bring because the only thing that could you know that can heal is is handling the fact that that person's gone from their life and I and like mm-hmm. I think one of the most the strongest emotion beneath that that revenge that anger all those emotions is just this loud cry from the heart. This should never have happened, please, right. so that this has never happened. That's what they want, understandably, but it's not what we can give them, and so I think that. Groups that work with with victims um, are the are the best way to go. That they need our care, they need our help, they need our attention. But they may need to be in conversation with with the murderer. Right? That uh, that programs that ask a murderer to stare the family's victims in the face, not in the courtroom. Sorry, I'm going to have a train back here. Um, not in the courtroom. There's no problem. <laughs> uh, but, um, that, oh, that's that, quite all right. Yeah, that can bring more healing possibly. Uh, again, when we, when we were, and that fits into my model of respecting the murderer as a person. He is, he or she is, more than just the murderer, and we want to appeal to the murderers, um, or 
moral capacity to to apologize, to be sorry, to regret, and to commit himself to or herself to a better life. And I do think that facing up to the anger of the victim quite personally, rather than just, oh, the death penalty behind a, you know, a curtain, yeah. uh, is very likely to achieve the just cause of punishment and help the victim more than what we do now. I don't know, what do you think <laughs> on that? Uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, I mean, I've, you know, I thought it's, it's, by God's grace, I've never had to experience, you know, the loss of a, of a loved one well, in my family uh, through violence. Um, you know, personally, I've been in war and it's a whole different framework. Uh, but in, in a case of, in a, in a civil society, um, there is that cathartic response of, I want something done. And, and I don't, and, uh, I want justice. I think that wells up. I think that's a natural human response that we do want this wrong righted. Right. And, but I thought, I think it's also the recognition. Um, there are some ways that a wrong can be righted. It's still not going to bring that person back. It's, it's just not going to bring that person back. So part of it is a discussion is, um, what is it that you are truly looking for in the midst of your grief uh, and suffering and loss and anger and, and disbelief of, you know, having a, your normalcy just, just shaken to its foundations. Um, but then also you mentioned to the offender, um, that individual is a moral agent as well. Uh, he or she has has agency, and um, they chose to do that act uh, for a reason. And I think that helps with the why on the end of the uh, victim's family, because that's one of the questions that's asked, whether you're religious or not. There is that of why did this happen? Why did this happen to my my loved one? Um, and I think that would that would be tough to to sit in front of that individual, um, however long it took for him or her to express that why. But then, in order for that person to express that why, that that requires some uh, deep introspection um, as yes. to why he or she committed that, and you know, to look in the mirror and say, um, I. Because to, to to in the case of murdering somebody, you have you have depersonalized them, him or her. You have moved to a point um, where you no longer see them as you, as you and him or the offender and the victim having a commonality uh, of being human. Uh, they've moved to another place that then they act. Um, and so it's diving deep into why that, how that process occurred and, and why you chose to, to do that. Um, and uh, are people willing to sit through that um, and, and do that very, very, very uh, hard uh, work? Um, 
but I was reading, uh, you know, thinking about that that quote from uh, Solzhenitsky, like that that line of good and evil runs through all of us. So um, it's only by God's grace or, or, or something where that could be me, you know, and that's one of the other things I think about. Whatever the circumstances were, that could that could have been me. I could be that offender. Um, I could be the one who is is sitting on death row, and and why am I not? You know, mm-hmm. and uh, the hope is that would buffer a little bit that anger, um, especially that that anger side of, of of just wanting. I think not just justice, but almost vengeance in in in, in some cases. So. Um, I can't imagine what, again, what those families go through, um, especially those that have, you know, continue to sit on death row because of appeals, because there's no closure still. Right. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's still no closure. That person is is, you know, still living, still eating, still existing, still learning, whereas my loved one is not anymore. Um, and. So there's no closure on the victims in, but then there's no closure on the offenders in as well as the offenders families in as well. Um, Mm -hmm. So again, this is not just, well, immediate in the immediacy, it was something that happened between two individuals or individuals done something to multiple people in some cases, uh, but it extends out. That one act extends out and impacts so many people. And so that suffering echoes, um, the, the reverberations of that are just, um, are just something. Um, you know, I, I was just reading, uh, something, I think it was from the, uh, the website on, um, let me think about it for a second. What is it? Um, I guess it's capitalpunishment.com. I'm not, I'm not going to think about it, but, okay. but the fact so we have, as long as we have the death penalty, we must allow uh, opportunity and time for the appeals. That's a part of the justice. We have to guarantee that we yeah. are not a person who is innocent, did not do it, or is innocent according to our laws. That is, the laws were wrongly applied. We, we must do that. And so the, the long time it takes for, for those appeals are, is often very, very hard on the family. And, and it does make it harder to find some closure. Not so much they discover because the person is alive, because once the person's dead, they discover, oh, that's not closure either. Right. But, but they don't get to the point where they, they can discover that um, because they're waiting, 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 and they think it's going to solve. Yeah. And it doesn't. Uh, so, you know, I, I do think that life imprisonment, life imprisonment without parole uh, would, will have some benefits for victims' families that doesn't get talked about when it just becomes a slogan, you know, justice mm-hmm. for the for the victim. Yeah. 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 And I, so, I appreciate all of us having the good and bad in us. I, I do think sometimes we should ask, you know, but for the grace of God, there go I. And yeah. uh, I was that person on death row and my, my deep in my soul, I, I, I know I, I can be, I am better than this and I can be better than this and, and and I can see this is awful now, and then I'm going to die. You know how how do we feel? Yeah. Yes. Oh, you think so? 
Yeah, so offer us a, a vision of justice for the future. I mean, if you look at, at history, um, and you spoke about this in the beginning, the means used uh, regards to the death penalty have changed. Um, I mean, I mean, I mean, you look at history, there's some brutal ways in which people were, were put to death, either by fire or drawing quarters or, you know, beheadings, so on and so forth. Um, now we're at a stage where it's, you know, lethal injections and, uh, and electrocutions. Um, so we are progressing. Uh, and uh, what what does the future hold in, in in this regard? What does the future look like in a in a society without the death penalty, uh, mm-hmm. and still maintaining the dignity of of, of all the individuals uh, mm-hmm. involved? Yeah. Uh, so, you, um, I mean, one you you asked me what is a what's my vision of a of a just system of punishment, and then you. You yeah. name particular ways in which we we do bring about the death penalty. Of course, since I'm against the death penalty, none of those right, are right, right. better uh, than the other. And and I, w- I would like to say that you know there there are lots of complicating factors in using in using medicine um, to purposefully kill on behalf of of the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are multiple issues there in lethal injection. And, uh, and there also are all kinds of issues about the way in which we're not sure that we're not causing torture of a kind uh, when we use those drugs. I'm not up on all those details, but, but, but it's incumbent upon us to ask about that and to know what is it that we are doing that is cruel and unusual or torturous when we kill persons, if we are going to have the death penalty. It's interesting in itself that it matters to us how we kill a person, even though even if we think they deserve to die. I mean, it speaks to our humanity that that it matters, but I, I just think there's something cosmically significant, yeah, maybe theologically significant, that it is hard to kill a person humanely. It ought to be, right? I don't and uh, and maybe we should listen to that and say, you right. know what, we're not supposed to be we're not supposed to be about this business. And so when you ask, you know, more generally, so if I say, uh, uh, you know, life, uh, life imprisonment without parole. There might be some issues that later I want to think about in never giving anybody a chance for uh, for parole. But but mm-hmm. it seems to be uh, a more just move than the death penalty to me. And of course, then if you're just thinking about incarceration in general, there is so much we need to do to improve what we do when we incarcerate people, uh, because it is a system in which we often throw them as garbage. To go mm-hmm. back to that language, that object lesson, right. as if, if we can put them in some jail and we never have to look at them and we don't have to care about their circumstances and we presume there's a lot of violence and so we don't care how much violence they suffer while they're there. Uh, that's really not respecting those persons as inherently worthy and sacred beings and people who are, who are more than the crime that they're being punished for. We can punish them for the crime. It has to remain in some way proportionate to, to the suffering cause, meaningfully proportionate, but it should not be filled with arbitrary subjection to, uh, to violence or to rape while they're there, to harm for they're just be under the thumb or power of, yeah. of, of guards. That's a problem that we have. Uh, so I don't have a solution to how we get there. I do think we need to humanize yeah. folks who are incarcerated. 
I think we need to realize that many people, the route by which people become incarcerated is not just they sat back one day and in an evil spirit thought they would do something bad, right? right. So what you let's think about what brings people to the point where they do something that we think deserves incarceration. And, uh, and, and let's try uh, to, to, speak, to speak to that uh, in our society. So I don't think there's any sudden rendering of good things in incarceration without looking at the society that, had, mm-hmm. that uses incarceration as much and as often as we do. And where I think we'll find that incarceration follow, falls particularly heavily. Uh, among the, the poor and those who have been disenfranchised in many ways mm-hmm. uh, from the goods of society. Yeah. So. That's good. Yeah, I, I tend to think, and one of the things I've been thinking through is, uh, especially at the, the disproportionate nature that it impacts uh, disenfranchised persons and then from a class perspective, persons who are uh, low middle income and low income and and even down to the homeless is uh the types of laws that are that are passed um obviously uh at a state legislature level and then in in some cases federal level uh, i think those need to be examined as well and how can uh, we i tend to say increase the gap between uh, those who enforce the law and everyday citizens um, you know, just from my experience, uh, especially working decrease with. Phil, did you say decrease the gap? Or no, I want to increase the gap. Right. Between, between law enforcement and, and everyday citizens. Um, because, uh, you know, once you get into that, that, that cycle, that criminal mm. justice cycle, right? you know, with fines and, um, and well, court appearances. And then I got to make a decision whether or not am I going to leave my hourly job? And if I don't leave, then, you know, a warrant is going to come out for my arrest and, you know, but I still need to work. And, um, there's just some laws I think that are on the books that, um, increase the, the probability that I'm going to run into someone who is in law enforcement and then put and I end up in a county jail, you know, a city jail, a county jail, or, or at worst. And so I think that needs to be looked at as well. We got to hold our uh, elected officials uh, accountable. Yeah, there's some studies being done just uh, from you know the what's called being called the pull the jail pipeline. And uh, the way in which a no tolerance about about bullies. I mean, once you once you classify a kid as uh, needing that avenue of the courts, uh, unfortunate things uh, come in, into their lives. Yeah. And um, and so it's not it's not I understand what you mean about wanting to separate. I think the reason why I question it is, I think in some ways. Uh, helping people understand anybody, law enforcement, politicians, everyday yeah. folks like us, understand the conditions that um, that lead to to crime, uh, or yeah. that put people in a court system out of which they then don't know how to how to get out. You know, there's certain skills for surviving in a in an incarceration situation that yeah, are not skills 
the outside. So that's my other concern is what are we doing for those people who are not there for life, right? And we plan to allow them out, but everything that's happened to them in the incarcerated in, in incarceration prepares them for the opposite of what it takes to come yeah. out and yeah. live well. And so yeah. we need to be better um, in, in that regard. Uh, yeah. Just being turned into a number, being turned into a thing, uh, being prepared for violence uh, around you rather than to, to hear a sound and be able to detect that's not violence. Um, those, those are things that lead to people being more prepared to lead violent lives when they get out rather yeah. than uh, and so we've got to do something about that yeah and 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 to one final point when you talk about the uh call the school to prison you know pipeline you know um i spent a lot of time at the high schools working you know with kids and i remember there was a time when i was growing up you know you got into a fight at school um you know it was handled with the principal and you know detention you know after school or Saturday school is what we called it as well as, as a remedy for that. Um, you know, now, uh, with, you know, with, you know, the presence of, uh, school resource officers and, and law enforcement on campuses now, um, and, and I speak to this cause I've, I've had to be involved with it three times in the last, uh, four years. Uh, you know, a kid gets in a fight at a school, um, he or she gets an automatic uh, citation from a law enforcement officer, uh, and they've got to show up to juvenile court. And so at that very moment, they are in the in the criminal justice system, like at that very moment. What what used to, you know, be handled because, you know, kids are going to be kids. Um, mm-hmm now has become a, a situation in which um, now you have to come to juvenile court with your parent or guardian um, and, you know, whatever those repercussions are. And that exposes a kid to something. I just don't think, uh, you know, for something at that level, um, he or she needs to be exposed to. And there are, there are different ways to address, you know, kids' conflict resolution, essentially. Um, instead of bringing in local law enforcement to to deal with that and and what can happen after that, so uh, th- those are kind of, yeah those are kind of things that frustrate me and, and I ask myself how did we get here to yeah. you know arresting in some I've seen in some cases ten year olds you know and uh, wh- why are we here and, and what do we think this is going to solve. Um, Yes. So, I agree. Final, final thoughts that you would like to share with everyone. Um, well, if we ask what kinds of things uh, can make a difference, I would just really encourage folks to find ways that they can learn about what about the life of folks on death row and in incarceration. To, in that sense, break the gap between those of us who we think are safely out here and those that we think are so terrible because they're in there. And um, sign up for programs where you get to meet people who, excuse me, who have been prisoners. Read books about people who have been prisoners. A book that made a big difference for me when I was working on the, my dissertation on death penalty was called In the Belly of the Beast, Letter from Prisons. And it was written, uh, they were letters written by somebody in prison. Uh, Jack Abbott, I believe, was his name. 
in just his description of prison life. And then mm-hmm. the, you get to the end. He is one of those people. He did get out. And um, he's holding a job and he hears a sound in an alleyway that was nothing. But he responded to it as if it was the kind of um, violent threat that he had experienced in jail. And he responded to that and it ended up him uh, getting killed. And um, so I, I think uh, I think that's those that's important that we understand folks' lives and to think of them as persons and asking what can we do to help them respond in deep ways that recognize the depth of the wrong when it's wrong and how they might become better people while they're, while they're incarcerated and when they get out. Uh, the book Just Mercy, I know I don't know if that was going to be a different question, but you asked me about some books. And, of course, I think uh, Brian Stevenson's book Just Mercy. Right. Uh, I think everybody should read it. Don't The, the movie's good, uh, yeah. but don't just depend upon the movie. Uh, read that book um, and get an inside view of what happens when somebody gets falsely accused. And also you see the broader, uh, even a broader picture than that about how the death penalty functions and the kind of cases and, uh, and folks who usually get brought up against the death penalty. I think in that book, Stevenson says that, that while you can trace uh, a thing of, ra- of race, um, mm-hmm. making it more likely that somebody's going to end up on the death row, either their race as the, as the accused or their victim, because if your victim is white, there's a, more, a likelier chance that you're going to get the death penalty. But then he says, but to a person, the folks he's worked with on death row have been poor. Right. And our ability to see to to in a way um, to criminalize poverty and to see those who are poor. uh, You know, we move from they're poor, they're non-contributors. Therefore, they're probably bad folk. Mm -hmm. So I would trace our ability to change our prison systems and treat people more justly more merciful and good uh, by how we how we treat folks on the street. Yeah, that's good. Dr. Corbett, I appreciate you very much for sharing with us today. Uh, thank you for asking me, Phil. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us at the Humanity Matters Podcast. For more information, visit our website, philipfletcher.org. Like us on YouTube. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Remember to be loved, be kind, be generous. And if we remember to live in hope, we can do it.